All right. I love the name Fireside Chats. I think that's my favorite thing so far about that. Did you remember? I don't know if you, you maybe some of you do. Roosevelt's Fireside Chats. Yeah. <laughs> Dawn's like, yes, I remember. Um, that's what I think of. I think of Fireside Chats. All right. So back to Ephesians today. Let's do, like we always do, a little recap to remind us of what we covered last time. We talked about um, getting into the end of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5, no longer walking as the nations walk. How does it look if you're walking as the nations walk? That means you're walking according to the age of this world, according to the passions of the flesh, and you're doing the things of the fleshly will and having those mindsets. That's how the nations walk. And we did not learn that in Messiah. We talked about learning the Messiah, not learning a set of prescriptives or a set of concepts or a list of things you do in a particular situation, but we talked about learning a person and how our Christianity, our Christian life, um, our new life and identity is completely dependent upon the person of Jesus. We started contrasting. This whole section is about contrasting. We started with the old and the new humanity. We went over the list of the old humanity things that don't belong in the new creation because they just bring death and division and all kinds of nasty stuff that doesn't belong. Living according to the old when you are a new creation is a contradiction of your identity. That is no longer who you are, and there's no place for it in you. And if you live according to the old, other places in the Bible, that's called double-mindedness, and it's a terrible way to be. You know, you're never going to get anywhere if you're constantly double-minded. So that's our recap. We're going to continue with this theme of comparing and contrasting, mostly contrast, um, looking at how things are different. Whereas we started with the old and the new humanity in the last movement, we're going to continue today talking about darkness and how that contrasts with light. We'll just start by reading through uh, verses 3 through 14 here. But sexual immorality and all impurity or greedy desire should not be named among y'all as is fitting for holy ones. Also, obscenity or foolish talk or inappropriate humor. Such things have no place, but rather grateful thanksgiving. For y'all should surely know this, that no sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of the Messiah and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, because on account of such things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not participate with them, for you were at one time darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is in all goodness and justice and truth, discerning what it is that pleases the Lord. And don't share together in the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them for what is done in hiding by them is shameful even to mention. But everything that is exposed by the light is made visible. For everything that is made visible is light. Therefore, one says, Awake, sleeper, rise from among the dead ones, and the Messiah will shine on you. All right, if you guessed that I had a graphic for this whole section, you were right. Um, so you can begin to see the construction of this whole um, section of scripture. 
Notice that there's three triads here. There's one here. They're all represented by the letter A. So your first triad is here. Sexual immorality, all impurity, greedy desire. Your second triad is obscenity, foolish talk, and appropriate humor. And the last triad here is, again, sexual immorality, impurity, and greed. Each triad is followed by a pronouncement that those things don't belong. Here it says, they should not be named among you. Such things have no place. They have no place now. They don't belong in our current setting. Also, they don't belong in the future. Anyone who participates and shares in such things um, does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of the Messiah and of God. And then C is, it's like a new creation alternative. So instead of what doesn't belong, what does belong, things that are fitting for the holy ones, like grateful thanksgiving. Now you're set up to expect this pattern, A, B, C, A, B, C. What happens down here is that the pattern breaks and you get D. And when that happens, it's to draw your attention to there's a break in the pattern. So Paul is going to make a point here that's going to act as like a capstone for this whole section of scripture that he's written. And this is his point. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So don't let anyone try and convince you that this stuff he's listed in these triads has any place in the new creation. Don't, let, don't be deceived that it has any use to you now that you are in the kingdom. Um, and it's because of the things in these triads right here that the wrath of God is coming. And if you notice what the triads are made up of, you'll see some repetition. So in the center here is a little different. We have obscenity, foolish talk, inappropriate humor, <clears throat> things you do with your mouth, which is also an inappropriate use of your body. Um, but there's some repetition. What's really highlighted here, you can see sexual immorality and greed are up here, and they're repeated. Again, in this triad, that's really being driven home in this section. And as you look at the antidotes for these things, what's listed here is grateful thanksgiving. So instead of these things, what's fitting for the holy ones is grateful thanksgiving. That's given as an antidote to greed and to sexual immorality. So as you think, how does that work as an antidote to those things? How does how does that diffuse and stand in place of those things? Well, it makes a lot of sense with greed. I mean, you can kind of think that one through, right? If you are grateful and you're giving thanks, um, that means that you're not taking the time to look at what you don't have. You're not dwelling on the things that you think you've been cheated out of or whatever. So that automatically will diffuse that covetousness and that greed that um, we get drawn to and we dwell on what we don't have. And it's a little more of a stretch. You have to think a little more deeply to think about how does grateful Thanksgiving counteract sexual immorality? Um, think of it in question form. What is your body? Is it something that is yours to do whatever you want with it? Is that the case? No, that's not the case. The answer to what your body is, is that it is a gift. Your body is a gift, and it doesn't 
truly belong to you. It's not something that you should take for granted or feel entitled to use and abuse in whatever way you see fit. In 1 Corinthians 6, there's a very similar list to our triads here. And I really like the way this sums up our idea of who our body really belongs to. So Paul is telling these believers in Corinth who are using their bodies in ways that are inappropriate for the kingdom. And this is the list he gives them. Sexual immorality, idolaters, adulterers, those engaged in homosexual acts, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, the verbally abusive, and swindlers. So he addresses the people that were using their bodies in such ways in the church in Corinth. And he ends that list by summing it up and telling them, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. And that's the same thing that he's driving home here in this list. Your body is not your own. It is a gift and you are bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. When you are grateful and you offer thanksgiving for the gift that is your body, your perspective on your body changes. Um, you, you can begin to see that using it in sexual immorality, which is any sexual activity outside of the covenant relationship, marriage covenant between a man and a woman, using your body outside of that in such ways um, is a denigration to something that is supposed to be a gift from God. And as you give thanks for the body that's been given to you as a gift, you'll begin to see the bodies of others as very sacred. How important is that in our culture today? Think about if you're a woman, you've probably had the experience of being reduced to an object, to having your humanity stripped away from you and being objectified, just becoming a thing. And it seems that in our culture, people think that the solution to the objectification of women is to now objectify men. And you see this everywhere. Think about the books that are coming out and the movies that are coming out that encourage women to take back that power and go to the theater and sexualize men and treat them the way that they've been treated. And that is so not the solution for human beings to just tear down other human beings so that they can elevate themselves and feel more powerful. That's not what it's all about. The truth of the matter is Jesus came and he saw it fit to give himself up so that you and the person next to you could be offered the gift of reconciliation to God. He saw fit to do that. He suffered to make that possible. And in that is a profound statement that you are worth it. And the person inhabiting the body next to you is worth it. And that gives you value to see yourself, your body, and the gifts and the bodies of other people as a gift from God, something that we should respect and value. So because of all of these things, because of these triads and all of this stuff, like he says in section D, the wrath of God is coming because of these things. The sons of disobedience that use their bodies in such a way are under deception. They think it's freedom, but in reality, it's captivity that leads to death in every sense of the word. It's part of this age. It's being phased out now and will be totally destroyed in the fulfillment of the age to come. So when we talk about God's wrath, there's probably all sorts of different thoughts that come to mind um, as far as what that looks like. And a really great place to go 
and look at what's God's wrath look like is Romans chapter 1. So right here at the beginning in this section, it says, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness. So you can tell from here on out, we're probably looking at an exposition of what God's wrath looks like. This is going to give us a pretty good idea of what this means. So oh, I thought I had part of this underlined. Um, so God's wrath. He's talking about these people, the wicked and the unrighteous, that suppress the truth. So even though the truth is evident in creation, that the uh, evidence of God is everywhere, these people suppress the truth by their wickedness. They fall prey to a false sense of reality. It's like they think that there's no consequence for our actions, there's no God, and it doesn't matter what he says, so I just get to do whatever I want. That's the false sense of reality that they fall prey to. And instead, it says that their thinking becomes worthless, and their senseless hearts are darkened. They claim to be wise, but they become fools. I mean, can't you, that's, this is just like a low-hanging fruit. We can see this in our world. People that claim their own wisdom for themselves, they say, I'll be my own God, and I know what is best, so I'm just going to do whatever I want. And when they do that, they become actual fools. They exchange the glory of God for all of these things that are not God. And so then starting here in verse 24, it says, therefore, God delivered them over and the desires of their hearts to all of these things. He delivers them over. Now, this is a phrase that's repeated. He's, it's saying something here. As we go on in this same section of scripture, you get to verse 26. For this reason, God delivered them over to these things that were the desires in their heart, to the things that they had claimed as wisdom, to the things that they had traded the knowledge of God for. He delivers them over. And again, in verse 28, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. Do you see it? Three times it says God delivers them over. And these results accumulate and humanity essentially destroys itself. Um, people eat the fruit of their ways. They reap what they sow. And if you remember last week, we talked about the callous that forms. Their minds become callous. You do a repeated behavior over and over again. You become numb to the deception. You become numb to the ways that you're destroying yourself. That callous builds up on your soul when you choose your own way over and over and over again. A story that this reminds me of, and I think is a great example, it's from the Old Testament. It's in 1 Samuel, and it's when Israel rejects God as king and decides they want to be like the other nations. They say to Samuel, give us a king. And as Samuel goes and talks to God, God tells him, they've rejected me. It's not about you. They've rejected me. And God says to Samuel, I want you to tell them, remind them of the ways of the king and what this is going to be like. So Samuel goes to the people and he says that a king is going to take your sons, your daughters, your crops, your livestock, the best of all of essentially everything you have for his service. And on that day that that happens, you are going to cry out to God because of the king that you have chosen for yourself and he won't hear you. That's what he says to them. And the people say, well, I don't care. I, I, I still want a king. I want to be like the other nations. And so God says to Samuel, appoint a king for the people. 
and it's disastrous because they rejected God as their king. It's an excellent example of him saying, this is what you want. I will let you have what you want. And you're going to have to eat the fruit of your ways. So the wrath of God often is thought of as just God destroying and leveling and doing away with things. And that does happen, but his wrath is also demonstrated by him allowing people to have their way and to destroy themselves. And that is a troubling thought. So moving on, if we go back here to section two. So therefore, this is in verse seven, therefore, because such things as we've talked about don't belong in the new creation, don't participate with them. Do not participate with them. You were at one time darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. At one time, that was your jam. That was the stuff that you did. That was all that you knew. But you're something different now, and that has no place here. You are now light in the Lord. Um, as I think about this, another great summation scripture that comes to mind is from 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, Peter says there, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Another reminder, act as you truly are. Don't contradict your new creation identity. Act as you truly are. So he goes on here to continue with this, talking about the contrast between darkness and light, what the fruit of the light is, and that it's goodness, justice, and truth. And living as light, let's see, what section is that? And living as light, um, it actually exposes the deeds of darkness. As you live your true identity, as you live according to who God says that you are, the ways of those outside of Jesus, those people that are around you, they're going to be exposed for what they really are. Darkness, hopelessness, and futility. And it does this, you living in your true identity, does this in a way that uh, bypasses logic. Like you can sit down and have a conversation with someone and tell them all the ways that they're wrong and all the fruit of that, but just living according to your heavenly identity in the presence of other people, not compromising your convictions and not compromising what you know is right, it surpasses logic and it does something on a much deeper level when they see that. They become convicted. It does this in a way that mere words can't. And they may slander you. They may come against you. They may do all kinds of things in retribution against that. But don't be discouraged. Continue to live according to love, to live according to the Spirit. Continue to live in that truth because the Spirit will work in circumstances and with people that you completely thought impossible. People that are just, they seem like they're not receiving anything. Like they're just horrible and you're like 
kind of starting to think in your human-like flesh brain, you're like, how in the world could this person ever come to know the Lord? Like, they are so far gone. You never know what he, amazing, incredible things he can do. There is no one who is too far gone. And I think that God is perfectly within his rights to say to us, do it because I said to do it. This is who you are. Do it because I say so. You know, sometimes as parents, we're within our rights to just say, do it because it's the right thing to do, not because it feels good or it looks like you're getting tons of results. Do it because it's what I said and it's who you are. He's perfectly within his rights to say that. So moving on to verse 14 down in here, this is the end of this particular movement. And it's interesting because it's like a little poem right here. And what this probably is, is it is kind of a pulled from these sections of Isaiah. So if you look there, you'll see the similarities. Um, most likely what this actually is, is it's a hymn that the church would have sang and probably was familiar with. And that's why Paul included it. You know, we have our great and faithful, thankful, like we have our songs that we just love and uh, that really minister to us. So this is probably a hymn that the church was familiar with, and it was pulled from these passages in Isaiah. And some of the roles of poetry, the way that poetry works, is it uses few words, but it is very dense. It uses words in such a way, and repetition, and comparing and contrasting in such a way that it communicates big ideas with a small amount of words, and this poem is no different. If you look at the density of it in just three lines, he talks about going from asleep to awake. That's such a metaphor that's biblical. We hear that over and over again. He talks about going from dead to being alive, arise from the dead ones. And then he ends with going from darkness to light. The Messiah will shine on you. You were once in darkness, but now you've been brought into the light. So doesn't that just fit so perfectly in this section? I love how well that fits in with this darkness and light motif. So to finish up, we're going to go a little further into the next movement, which is just verses 15 through 21. So I'll just go ahead and read that to you now. Therefore, watch carefully how y'all walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time, for the days are evil. Because of this, don't be foolish, but discern what is the will of the Lord. And don't be drunk with wine, which is recklessness, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual poems, creating poems and singing in y'all's hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always to God the Father for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Messiah, submitting to one another in reverence of the Messiah, wives to their husbands as to the Lord. And in this section here, he's giving two examples, concrete examples of mutual submission. Wives to their husbands as to the Lord, and husbands be loving your wives as the Messiah loved the church. And that's the next section that we'll go into next week. But first, let's pull some more out of this verses 15 through 21. So before we were talking about darkness versus light. Now he is moving into um, wisdom contrasted with foolishness. And uh, then he goes down in here into these, what does the influence of the spirit look like? 
as we walk in the wisdom of the spirit, these things come forth. And then as he goes on in verses 22 through 33, he's going to work out this spirit influence wisdom in the domestic sphere, in the home. He's going to show us what does that look like. So redeeming the time. That is back up one, I think. Yes. So right here in verse 16. So don't walk as unwise, but be wise and redeem the time for the days are evil. That's an interesting phrase. Redeem the time. Have you ever thought as, of time as something that you can redeem? Um, this is an example of wisdom, too. So don't be unwise, but be wise and redeem the time. What does that look like? What do you think of when you hear that? If you were to ask me that question, I would. A what? Yeah. I would think of um, like using your time really productively, not uh, wasting time, being productive with the time that you have. Well, the Greek word here for redeem means to buy something out of the marketplace. So this is language we're really familiar with. This is from Exodus. It's Exodus language. God redeeming people from slavery. Um, him, he's going to the marketplace, to the place where people are sold, and he's buying them. He's redeeming them from that, and he's giving them their freedom so that they're no longer slaves. So this is a theme we're familiar with. And uh, you could say that you're called, also this word can be mean to, like, to liberate something. So you could say that you're called to liberate the time for the days are evil. Liberate the time. There's this interesting thing happening here. You yourself have been liberated from evil. You've been freed and empowered to live according to the age to come right now in the here, uh, right now, not yet. And now you have the power to take time itself and free it from captivity to this present age and bring it into the new creation. That is something to think about, <laughs> like uh, to really meditate on and to ask the spirit, what does that look like in my life? What does it look like for me to liberate the time that I have and to bring that into the new creation? And I think that looks like more than just being productive. I, I think there's more to it. I think there's a deeper thing for us to learn about liberating the time than just like really hustle and like never waste time. I think that making the most of every opportunity means living according to what the spirit is saying in every opportunity. And sometimes that doesn't look much like productivity. It just doesn't. But we don't live according to those categories of the powers anymore. And we don't live according to what they label as valuable. If you think about Ezekiel, God told him to lay on one side for 390 days as a prophetic sign did, that did not look like he was killing it. Like that does not look like he is just hustling and getting it done. But that is redeeming the time. Like it's for God's purposes. We can take the time and make it for God's purposes. That, that's a possibility that we have in the new creation and through the spirit. So it's not just about killing it and hustling, but what is the spirit telling you to do with this time? So moving on in here, looking at these contrasts, why unwise and wise, don't be foolish, but discern what is the will of the Lord. That's kind of what we just talked about. You know, if you're going to redeem the time, you have to discern what's the will of the Lord here. 
And the third contrast, don't be drunk with wine, which is recklessness, but be filled by the Spirit. So I want you to notice what the pattern is so far. What Paul is doing up to this point is he is contrasting. He's pointing out the differences between things rather than the similarities. So as you get to verse 18, don't compare the similarities. Don't say, don't be drunk on wine, but be drunk on the spirit because they're similar. Look at the contrast. It's a question of contrasting influences here. What does it look like to be under the influence of wine? Well, you're certainly not discerning. You're certainly not wise. You're foolish. So don't do that. But what does it look like to be under the influence of the Spirit? You are certainly discerning. You're hearing the voice of the Spirit. You're walking in wisdom. It's a, it's a picture of totally different things. What it looks like to be under one influence, the influence of the world, or the influence of the Spirit is to be sober-minded and to understand what the will of God is in a certain situation. So keep that contrast in mind there, those contrasting influences, the re, uh, things that result from being filled by the Spirit. These Spirit influences are next here in this list. So if you look at verses 19 through 21, an important part to notice that we've talked about over and over again in Ephesians is that all of these verbs take place within a community. It is all about unity in the new creation. It's all about unity in the church. So you've got people speaking to each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual poems. This is a picture of the communal worship space of the new creation, of the people coming together to worship God. They're creating poems and the singing in y'all's hearts to the Lord. They're bringing forth something from themselves and praise to God and something to share with the community to draw them into the worship experience as well. They're giving thanks always to God the Father for all things. This is what we do when we have like a testimony Sunday. We give thanks to the Father for all things and we share that with each other. And as we share those stories of God's faithfulness, it edifies, we edify each other. We build each other up in the Lord, talking about how he's working in our everyday lives. And then going on to submitting to one another in reverence to the Messiah, which is followed by these two concrete examples and an exposition of each, what it looks like to submit to one another in the new creation and the kingdom, which is what we will begin to talk about next week when we come back. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you have brought us out of the darkness and into the light, Lord. We're thankful that you've given us your spirit and that we can walk in the ways of wisdom, that we can live in the truest sense of reality in your kingdom, Lord. We thank you for that. Help us make us more like you, Lord. Lead us in your ways every day. Help us to submit to you and to one another, Lord. Help us to be humble, to trust you, to be bold and courageous, to live our lives according to your truth boldly, Lord, and just to declare your kingdom and who you are that you've come. We love you and we thank you so much, Lord, for what you're doing here in our body, for what you're doing out in the world and in our community, Lord. And we thank you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.